service at this stage is also about making sure that my contribution leaves an organization I value better than I found it. Today on the podcast, I get the chance to have a discussion with someone who has excelled in a multitude of disciplines in her life. Professionally, she's a doctor and an army colonel. She's been a physician to rural communities, military communities, and to deployed operations in Afghanistan and Sierra Leone. Athletically, she was a national-level synchronized swimmer and continues to be a competitive CrossFit athlete. She is someone who always motivates me to push myself through her example. My friends, here's my conversation with Colleen Forrest J. Colleen, thank you so much for joining me today on the Northern Sentinels podcast. It's great to have you here. Uh, and I want to start with maybe some family beginnings in the, in the early days. So where are your parents from and, and where did you grow up? Uh, so first, thanks for having me. And uh, let's see, I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, I was born in Montreal, actually, while well, my dad was in uh, doing his residency out there. But uh, most of my upbringing was out of Edmonton. Um, my my father was a orthopedic surgeon, and my mom was an artist. And uh, so we had a scientific and artistic upbringing, I would say, both ends of the spectrum. There are four of us growing up. So I was third out of four, and uh, so my mom had a handful for sure. And what drew your what drew your parents to those particular professions? That's a great question. Um, my father grew up in Quebec. He's he is uh, born and raised in Quebec, and I heard a lot of stories about him taking things apart and putting things back together again, and. Uh, I think he was one of the first ones in his family to go into medical school. So I'm not sure what exactly drew him into medical school, but I'm pretty sure what drew him into orthopedic surgery was the ability to take things apart and put them back together <laughs> again and rebuild things. Um, so that that seemed a natural uh, uh, ability of his. Um, my mom was uh, born and raised in Edmonton. Um, they met in Edmonton later, but... I think she always had an artistic um, edge to her. She went to university in California as a young woman. This is back in the 60s to, to be an interior de designer. So, I mean, that was always her. Her leaning was towards um, artistic uh, talents. But she focused mostly on, on painting, watercolor, acrylics, that sort of thing growing up. So how did how did the artist and the... Uh, orthopedic surgeon meet? My father's family. So his mother was from Quebec. His father was from what's an Anglophone. And they eventually moved from Quebec into Alberta. And I don't, I think it had to do with my grandfather's work with the Royal Bank or something at the time, post uh, Second World War. And uh, that's, that's how they ended up there. So they were a very francophone family. Most of the kids uh, grew up speaking French in Edmonton. Um, so I think they met at high school. Uh, my mom's friend was my 
my father's younger sister, so my aunt. So they met through school and through okay. family connections. And then they ended up back in Quebec when your dad was doing schooling and then came back to Edmonton. Yes, because he promised my mom they'd go back because <laughs> <laughs> that's where all her family was. Uh, so it seemed a, a reasonable compromise. She had four kids and he brought her back to Alberta. So, <laughs> so you're, you're a doctor, you're, you're, your dad's a doctor. I mean, that, that clearly had an influence on you. I mean, what are your, the influences of your parents' professions on, on you to this day, or maybe influencing your initial decisions and what you're going to do in life? You and your siblings, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was a, so I'm, I'm a physician. My older sister is a physician. My older brother is a medical illustrator and uh, my younger brother is in real estate. <laughs> So um, a little like deviation there. We have enough doctors. <laughs> we have enough of them. Um, so, you know, clearly both parents had significant influences in terms of what we were exposed to, our understanding of um, what opportunities lay out there. I don't remember ever really wanting to do anything else. I grew up from a very young age um, knowing that I this is the healthcare field would be the one I followed. It, it never deviated, except for when I almost failed university and realized that medical <laughs> school was really hard. <laughs> I had to work harder to get there. But, uh, but it was always going to be something related to health or healthcare. That was just something I was drawn to. Uh, and I had no artistic talents whatsoever. That entirely went to my oldest brother who... Uh, took up fine arts, um, illustration and, uh, and then the medical illustration arm. So don't you find that, um, when you have no ability in a certain area, you have so much respect for people who do. Oh yes. Cause I have no artistic ability no. either. I'm like stick man all the way, you yeah. know, like, Oh yeah. yeah. And he can pull off. They can both do incredible stuff, um, with the flick of a few pens. I'll have to, uh, I don't know if any of their work is available online just to view, but I'll, uh, if it is, I'll put it in the show notes. So what was life like growing up in Edmonton? I would classify it as a pretty standard childhood, but um, it's hard to compare when you don't know anything else, right? Uh, we, we grew up in a neighborhood and, you know, took the bus to school. And uh, I guess the, the one thing that we did perhaps a little bit differently um, then my friends is we did uh, French school growing up. So my, uh, right from kindergarten to grade nine, which was a bit unusual in Edmonton and it wasn't the same sort of French immersion programs that they have currently. It was just, everything was in French right. and we didn't speak French at home, yeah. <laughs> but that's all, that's all we had at school. Uh, and as challenging as it was sometimes, I'm certainly grateful to have had that exposure of both languages. Uh, and then, I mean, day to day, it was, it, you know, uh, the, the to and from, from sports and piano lessons and being exposed to different things as we, as we grew up. Um, what did you do for sports? So I started with the, the standard uh, community school or community uh, center, you know, things like soccer and uh, whatever was going on in the summer. But I always liked to swim. And eventually I found my way to synchronized swimming um, at when I was about 10. So my cousins were synchronized swimming at the time. My mom had done it when she was in California or prior to California. And she was even in water shows in California. 
It's very exciting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, so I found my way into to synchronized swimming at that time. And uh, yeah, it was something that I really enjoyed and was a lot of fun. That must have been a pretty big commitment. I mean, do you start off, does it start small or is it a, a large commitment from day one? Because most of the people I've known who've done swimming programs, it's a lot. It it was a lot. Certainly at the end, it was a lot. Uh, at the age of 10, it wasn't so much. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, but it was, um, I think even at age 10, it was three or four times a week. Like I took the bus from school and, you know, you, you hang out at the pool for a few hours. Uh, and then as, as it progressed, um, it became much more of a commitment. And then by the time I was 13 or 14, it was, you know, st- I'm going to say seven to 10 practices a week, maybe, maybe closer to seven at that age. And then by the time I was, uh, um, nearing the end of my synchronized swimming career, it was probably, they call it artistic swimming. Now they've changed the the name of the sport. I did not know Um, that. I know. And I think that was 35 plus hours a week that I was at the pool. Like that was a full on commitment by that time. And that was, you know, getting to a, a very competitive and national team level. Did you like that sort of level of pace and commitment in your life, even at a young age? I must have. (laughs) (laughs) I must have liked it. Uh, I certainly, I'm a big believer that success begets more success. And so as you're, if if you are uh, finding success and joy in something, it sort of motivates you to keep doing those things. And, um, I had a fantastic team, fantastic coaches, uh, fantastic experiences, which then motivated me to kind of continue and, and, and push harder. So it was something I thrived on to a point, And then there's, there's that magical moment of, I'm not sure I can continue, um, doing this or it's not as much joy as it used to be. It now it's work. And that was the uh, point at which I decided to focus a little bit more on university. How did the sailboat come into being (laughs) for the Forestier family? The sailboat. Yes, especially being from the prairies with no sailing experience. So when I was in grade 10, I was kind of trying to no, grade 11. So at the, around the age of 16, my father was, uh, had been a surgeon for a number of years and they were, he was looking to do something a little bit different. It was a a period of time where he, um, was looking for change and the kids were all growing up. We were all in our teen years and, uh, they, he and my mom decided that it was a good time to sell, uh, the house and, and buy a sailboat. Uh, a 42 foot sailboat for six of us and, uh, learn to sail. And it sounds a little bit over the top. He, my, my parents had had a little bit of experience with, uh, sailing my father more than my mom. My mom got, gets horribly seasick. I don't know how she agreed to this, but, uh, we went from Edmonton and yeah, sold the house. We kept a cottage up North in Northern Alberta and, cross-countryed in our truck to Toronto to find our sailboat, which had been purchased at a distance, and moved on to this thing. And for the next year, that was home. So we learned very quickly how to sail. 
uh, and we took it from Toronto down the intercoastal waterways down to the Bahamas and back. So for a year, it was all family all the time. Now, I know nothing about sailing. What is what is life on a 42-foot sailboat look like? like how There's six of you. Yes. It's a really small one. There's six <laughs> of you. Uh, so if you calculate that out, that's like seven feet per person. Um, so, th- I mean, sailboats and the, the way these are constructed are pretty phenomenal. Um, it's like a tiny home is the best way to, to express it. And you have... You know the the outer or the the deck and and um, the cockpit, which almost makes a different living space. But underneath, here you've got a tiny little area to cook. Um, the kitchen table also turns into a bed. Uh, the front berth is where the anchor goes, but also there's a couple of beds up there. Um, you have a small washroom, and uh, and then the back berth was where my parents were. So it was. It was tight quarters, um, especially for six of us. It sounds like a lot of room, but it's not really. No, it doesn't sound like a lot of room. (laughs) It was really not a lot of room. But you got to know each other really, really, really well. Uh, It was was very much a, uh, we've talked about this before, uh, very much a TSN turning point for, for us as a family, but also me as an individual, um, in turn, what that experience meant to us as a family and what that experience, uh, meant to me as an individual after that year was done. How did you deal with conflict or privacy, or did you just sort of say, well, nobody gets privacy, but conflict is, is another, another thing altogether. It's not like you just sort of, well, I'm going to storm out of the house and go to my friend's place. No, you can't do that. Although you can sometimes storm off on the dinghy and go to the beach. Um, so I think you, you find, you have to find solutions. You have to find ways to make it work. Uh, it, it, there were days where it wasn't easy for any of us. Um, and yet, uh, you find, find ways to find your space, to have the quiet time to, I want to say kiss and make up, your family, this is your space and you have to find a way to, to make it work. And, uh, that was, uh, that was a really important lesson, I think for us as family. Did it instill in you a sense of adventure? I mean, you're grade 11 on a sailboat for a year. It does a lot of things at that age. I mean, 16, even our mid teens, our formative years, I think for anyone can attest to that. Uh, for all of us, that meant we had to uproot our school, our family, our activities, our, not our family, but our, um, activities and our, our, our life as we knew it. And, and yet you come back to that space where you have changed. Like we came back to Edmonton after we're done, you, you come back, same school, um, same people, same activities, but you have fundamentally changed. You've had an experience that that changes how you see the world, how you see your place in the world, and that that alters how you look at things. And I, what I mean by things is is belongings. Suddenly, suddenly material. The material things. Mm. Uh, it it alters how you look at opportunities 
uh, or adventures, you, you, you do take those on a little bit differently. You, you understand their value a little differently for good or for bad. It also makes you recognize that for, for me, one of the big life lessons is, is life continues without you. You, you choose how you're going to engage with the world or how you're going to engage and choose your uh, path. The world's not going to wait for you to do it. And it will just continue going forward and it will continue uh, in whatever direction it's going to continue. But you can control uh, what you choose to do with that. So I think that was one of the big um, components of what I came back with uh, after that. When you look back on that year, was there anything that really stands out in terms of a particular event, a big storm, a crazy adventure, uh, you know, a cultural interaction uh, down in the Caribbean? Oh, we had some wicked storms. Uh, yeah, we we hit some. So, so to start remembering that none of us had sailed before except my father. So we, we had to learn really, really quickly um, how to do that. So going from Toronto in the first little bit where we went into uh, intercoastal waterways down to New York City, and then we had to go external out in New Jersey briefly. And we hit some bad storms. Uh, and the one I remember very specifically uh, coming out of New Jersey was we were, we had been in port for a while. We really needed to get out and decided to, to go. And it was stormy. Um, but it was the calmest it had been in a few days. And going out of that particular harbor, we were hitting some some good swells. And at one point at the bottom of the swell, we hit something. I don't know what we hit, like a rock or a, couldn't have been a rock because we didn't break, but like a, the bottom, like we just bottomed out. Remember that one. And for the next two months, there was the smell of diesel. So it had pinched a fuel line and we didn't realize it, but all we knew is that everything tasted like diesel for the next two months. Um, (laughs) so I remember that one. And I, I remember, you know, my sister's birthday in December, we were completely on our side because we had hit bottom in the Bahamas, uh, just as the tide was going out. So we had to wait for the tide to come back in. So we had her birthday on a 45 degree angle. I remember that. Uh, we had some we had some amazing times and uh, some some really interesting opportunities. Yeah. When you returned to Edmonton, did you you pick up where you left off? Like you said, life moved on, but you know, where did you sort of insert yourself back into uh, your life in Edmonton? So at that point, um, so that was grade eleven was spent doing correspondence on the boat. I came back to grade. 12. So back to the same high school, um, back to a lot of the same people I knew then back to my swim club at that time. There was a lot of familiarity to what we came back with too, uh, at that time. As I said, I think the, the sort of discovery that everything else just continued without you. And then now you're reinserting yourself in it. Um, it wasn't, it was, it was relatively seamless. It was surprisingly seamless. Like a, a year is a long time, but it's a short time. Mm. And uh, it was pretty quick to catch up um, on all of those patterns and all of those things that we were doing before without 
too much uh, difficulty. So it was almost as if you just picked up where you left off. But like I said, everyone in our family had shifted because we were all fundamental. We had experienced something fundamentally different and we were reinserting ourselves back into um, all of these normal activities that we had done prior, but we were slightly different. Must have been a busy year because now you're in grade 12 and you got to be looking towards the next thing. It was a busy year. And what was the next thing then? So the next thing, well, at that point in time, I was uh, swimming a lot. I didn't have quite enough credits to get through grade 12. So I took an extra year after that. And uh, the, the, the focus f- for me really was getting through high school. I needed an extra few credits and then uh, really trying to up my game in the swimming. Uh, that's where I focused. But the next, the next step was really university, University of Alberta, stayed home and uh, just focused on university after I finally finished grade 12. What was your <laughs> undergrad at U of A? It was a science degree. Okay. Yeah. I started off with an, in, uh, a math major. <laughs> a math major. I, Good yeah, for you. Yeah. I failed that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I didn't stay a math major. Uh, At least you were brave enough to start. <laughs> I wouldn't even have started. <laughs> it was, yeah, it wasn't a good experience. I'm like, mm, maybe I should try something different because this isn't working out. Uh, so uh, then we, and yeah, so then moved to biochemistry and like it was normal science degree after that. And, uh, and then the focus after, uh, I sort of got through a bumpy first couple of years, the focus was really on trying to get to medical school and recognizing just like, that's a commitment. I, I needed good grades every single class to, uh, to get over that, um, application to get through that application process. Were you maintaining your, your synchro at this point? I was through university. I maintained it until my end of my first year university. I think I'm trying to remember how, so I finished swimming when I was about 20. That's when I stopped, um, competitively swimming. I did some coaching and other th- activities after that, but really at the national team level was till I was about 20, 18, 19, 20. And then the school was the driver. I wasn't able to keep up the grades that I wanted to go to medical school. And that's when I, I had to choose. I felt I needed to choose because I was old at 20. I needed to choose. So at that point in time, it was, okay, I'm going to have to focus on what's next, which was medical school, which means I'm going to have to stop swimming now. Was there any loss of identity there? I asked that because I know I've seen other documentaries or actually spoken to people who are high-end athletes. I mean, you're a national level athlete and felt a loss of identity when they, they stopped that sport. I don't recall that, honestly. I, I stayed in, involved in the sport um, to some degree, you know, coaching some of the younger kids and, and doing some other uh, activities there. But I, I guess there's a shift, but I had another focus at that point in time. And maybe that, that was helpful. I knew what my next goal was and that's where I was placing my energy. I think if I hadn't had that, it would have, or if I had been forced to leave without another goal, it would have, uh, it would have looked and felt different. Uh, also recognizing, you know, synchronized swimming and the 
late 80s was not necessarily a, a widely recognized um, sport. Uh, you're not getting famous or rich on secret ice <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> so that makes it uh, uh, maybe a little less challenging to, uh, to transition from. Yeah, pr- probably not paying the same as the Edmonton Oilers were paying at the time. <laughs> no, that's right. Where did you go to medical school then? Was there, what was the what did your educational path look like after you left U of A? So U of A uh, for my science and undergrad degree, and then I went to the University of Western Ontario for my medical school. Then I did my residency in family medicine at the University of Calgary because I oh we I mean we love the West. It's always where we felt at home or I felt at home. So coming back to Calgary was a a pretty natural uh, fit at that point in time. So that made sense. You're in Calgary doing your residency. I'm assuming during that point in your education, you have to start making decisions about what's next. Where are you going to take your profession? Where was your head at? What were you thinking about doing and, and what did you end up doing? Well, I can tell you it wasn't on joining the military at that time, <laughs> for sure. I'll tell you what it wasn't. That's definitely where it wasn't going. The uh, So at that point in time, I always loved Calgary, always loved uh, sort of the West, really enjoyed the rural rotations of family medicine and the, the variety and um, spectrum of care that... Uh, that could be offered in those smaller communities. So the rural medicine arm is really what I fell in love with. And after those two years of residency, I did a, a one year rotational, what well, was a rotation? I, for one year I did uh, something called the rural locum program. And that was a relatively new program at that time. And you would be, you're kind of like a substitute doctor for rural physicians. So small towns that don't have many physicians, uh, and those physicians need a break. So if they want to go on holidays or a conference or need to take some time off for any reason, the rural locum program can provide uh, support. So I would go into these small towns and uh, basically be the substitute family doctor for however long they needed um, me at that time. So it could be a couple of weeks, it could be a month, it could be six weeks, depending on on what they needed at the time. So I traveled all over rural Alberta doing that. At the end of that year, uh, my husband and I were kind of debating what to do next and and an opportunity in southwestern Alberta, an area called the Crow's Nest Pass came up. And that small community uh, right in the Rocky Mountains and uh, needed a physician because their, one of their physicians was retiring. And it was, it was a good fit. It was something, it was a location we really loved. It was a community that was really interesting. It offered all aspects of medicine that um, were of interest to me and that were really rewarding. And so we decided to settle there for a few years. And uh, if anyone's been through the Crow's Nest Pass, they know they, it's that place where the, the rocks are across the highway, you know, the Frank slide. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's, it, that's, that's where we lived. And we lived there for about four years. 
Now, what you experienced on your uh, rural rotation, is that what it ended up being in Crow's Nest? Very much so. So, fantastic community. Uh, Some wonderful colleagues. But rural medicine is also very difficult and it can, it has its own unique challenges. It has its own unique rewards. It also has its own unique challenges. And uh, after we had, we had always kind of discussed that around year three, we would sort of take an inventory and decide if that's where we wanted to continue or if we wanted to look um, at something a little bit different. And at the end of that year three, uh, it was uh, a situation where we, we just felt we wanted to look for something a little bit different, not because it wasn't rewarding, not because we didn't enjoy the location, but simply it, uh, it, it didn't, we wanted to seek out something else that was, uh, that was new and, and, and different and just couldn't s- I couldn't quite see staying there for another 30 years without experiencing something else right. uh, at that time. And uh, so that's how the pathway led to military medicine. How did the, the idea of becoming an army doc come into your, your consciousness? I'm, I think it was during the residency. So I had some, <laughs> that's exactly why I said the, um, what my idea during residency was never to become a, a, a military doctor because I knew people <laughs> in my residency who were going through the military medicine program at the time. And I remember thinking, they're nuts. Why would they do that? But I ran into uh, a couple of colleagues, one in particular, uh, about three or four years into my rural medicine experience. And at that point, I ran into her in a conference and she was telling me what she was doing. And, uh, I think she had just come back from Cyprus and she worked out at Trenton. She was, uh, doing all kinds of things that were so interesting and so fundamentally different than what, um, than I was currently doing. And so outside of the scope of what I understood medicine could be that, uh, that it really got me sort of interested and, and starting to talk to other, uh, people about that, what that opportunity might be, uh, how would you even apply all of those things? And, uh, so at first glance I looked into it and went, nah, that's definitely not what I want to be doing. And, uh, and then a few months later, I'm like, mm, maybe I'll look at that again and, uh, lift up that rock again. And at that point in time, it, it started to become a little bit more interesting. Um, and started talking to a lot more people and getting an idea of what did this really mean? What was the commitment? What did I, re- what was I really signing up for? Uh, my husband had been a reservist for some years in the past. He, uh, I don't think he was at that time. Um, so I had a little bit of experience of what the military might be like a little bit. And but no one else in my family had ever really joined the military. So it was, uh, I think my grandfather in great world war two, uh, briefly, but no one else that I had experience with was, was engaged in that military, uh, way of life. So yeah, it was a bit of a leap when we finally decided to, to go ahead and do that. What did friends and family think about your decision? They questioned it. Uh, 
but not no not overtly. I think they kind of went oh, like, are you feeling okay? Uh, Is it the thin air in the crow's nest? That's, it uh, might have been. I don't recall them being against it, but I think they did question it. One of the experiences I had at the time that I was considering this. And you, you talked about, you know, does it open you up to new adventures when, like, something on the boat, does it open you up to new experiences? What was interesting at the time that I was considering this is uh, is my duet partner for many years at Synchronized Swimming had just joined Cirque du Soleil. So uh, I remember thinking, like, hell, if she can join the circus, I can frickin' join the <laughs> army for a few years. So that was that was kind of my my mentality, like, oh, it's a four year commitment. It'll be interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll learn some new things. It'll it'll be uh, I'll learn some new skills. I'll learn about occupational medicine like that. That could be really interesting. I'll 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 give it a go. What could go wrong? <laughs> And uh, so in 19, or sorry, it was 2003 is uh, when I, I joined. Now, for, for those who don't have a military background, you, you enroll in the forces. And then once you're done your, your training, or maybe even before sometimes, you get sent to your first unit um, to do your, to your job. So what was your first unit you got sent to? So my first unit, when I arrived in Edmonton, I think they, uh, they, I asked to go to Edmonton, which I think surprised the recruiter a lot because no one apparently wanted to go to Edmonton at that time. Uh, and then they promptly assigned me to a unit called 3PPCLI. Uh, and so that was the light infantry battalion. And to put that into context, I, I hadn't done basic training yet because they had so few doctors at the time that they couldn't afford to send us away for, the, for basic training. So I had to kind of learn on the fly. Um, but yeah, 3PPCLI was my unit. So what is the sort of the initial impressions when you show up as a doctor to this light infantry battalion? And for those who, who haven't got context in the military... Uh, I will, I will stereotype, but the light infantry battalions are typically uh, looked at as because they don't have vehicles, so everything has got to be, or they don't have a lot of vehicles. They're doing everything on foot, or mm-hmm. they're using other means like parachuting or helicopters to get to the place that they need to do their job. So there's a bit of a there's an interesting sort of mystique around light infantry battalions sometimes. What was that like for you showing up at three PPCLI? Um, it was, it was different. It was different than I expected. I don't know what I expected. I remember the, the CEO of the unit at the time, uh, was very welcoming. I think they were very happy to have a a doctor assigned to their unit. The group themselves were very welcoming, but I was noticeably in the minority, um, as, as one of very few women as part of uh, the battalion itself. But what I experienced was a very uh, welcoming group of individuals who were curious about what it is that I would do as their physician, mm. um, uh, a desire to show me what they do on a day-to-day basis, um, a genuine appreciation for the care they were receiving, um, and, uh, a desire to really include, 
um, myself and my medical technicians in on their team. So it's it was a really positive experience um, and unexpectedly warm. That was parting part of including you in to the battalion, putting you on the parachute course. Or did you go and seek that out? Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember if I sought it out or mentioned that I was interested or asked specifically. Um, I believe the battalion itself asked if I would be interested in doing it and uh, even offered me one of their spots to go because one field ambulance, which was my medical unit, didn't have enough um, positions. Um, so that was, that was an adventure. So keep in mind, I was 35 at the time. I did mine at 24, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, I think I was the only woman on the course when I went. They, uh, just to be sure they made me do the fitness test three times (laughs) to really make sure I could really pull this off. And, uh, and, and it was, um, it was, it was physically very challenging, uh, but also uh, incredibly rewarding. It's it, especially when you finished it and you successfully <laughs> complete it, that that's, that was a, that was really a lot of fun. And it was even more fun when you kind of got to be a part of that jumping out of the, the, the planes with the battalion that you're serving with and gave me a m- much better appreciation for what it is they do day to day, um, the work that they put in and, uh, the, I guess the, the risks inherent in the job itself. Yeah. Doing hard things is important. Doing hard things, uh, is great for self-development. And, and I've always found that it's, it's also good to, to demonstrate that you're, you're committed to something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, that's, I have no doubt that the, the level of credibility that that gave you um, amongst the team uh, would probably be tough to measure. Whether you saw it or not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I saw it overtly, but I know that even now there there's something about um, having those experiences and, and reconnecting with people who've had some of those those unique experiences and the parachute course would be one of them, one of many, uh, that, that binds people, uh, in a, in a way that's hard to explain. That's a perfect segue maybe to something that binds us a shared experience is, is Afghanistan. And we were in Afghanistan together. What was your initial thoughts when you, you heard that you were going to be deployed to, to Kandahar in 05? My first thoughts was, I, I was I was really um, excited. I was excited to to go with the battalion that I was part of and to to contribute to that. I'm not sure I necessarily understood uh, the enormity or the implications of what that deployment would be and uh, how it would evolve. This was contextually, um, Iraq was going on and was very, um, very much the focus of, of the news and what was going on in the U S Afghanistan was a little bit, 
um, on, I must say on the back burner, but yeah, I guess it was on the back burner at the time. It was, it was part of that whole Middle East conflict, but not front and center the way Iraq was. So I think it didn't necessarily understand the, um, the, the level of the security implications, the, um, other considerations, uh, that would come front and center to us as a team coming, coming out of that. Yeah, I definitely felt, um, a sense of walking into the unknown, a lot of uncertainty, probably felt as prepared as I could be at the time, but in hindsight, definitely not as prepared as maybe, um, we should have been, but it's always difficult with hindsight. How did you feel on the medical side going in? I'm obviously talking from my perspective as a, as an engineer, but as the, the, the doc for the task force for the mission, what, how did you feel going in? In hindsight or at the time? Because I, yeah, Yeah. uh, I think at the time, I think our team was as prepared as they could have been given, given what we knew at the time. So TCCC, for example, was just starting and just coming online. So uh, tactical, tactical casualty combat care, which is, uh, was a, a, relatively new in the 2003 to five timeline. And that was sort of a shift in, in the way casualties and particularly battle casualties were being treated, um, in the first few minutes after being injured and what had been very much a no tourniquets, um, and, uh, focus on evacuation, um, and limited supplies other than what med techs could carry forward. The the TCCC kind of shifted that algorithm to making sure everybody had access to some really important interventions up front, like tourniquets, like bandages, like uh, at the time, you know, there was even um, needles to decompress pneumothoraces, uh, nasal pharyngeal airways. So some, some things that really hadn't been handed to at the soldier level until that time and a move away from the idea that everyone needs an IV or, or some of these things, which had been, um, really the, the focus of training prior. So that shift was happening at that time. You know, for, as an example, I think our team went with surgical tubing, uh, because we didn't have tourniquets. We, we did. I think I still have mine. Yeah. And but that's all we had. That that was considered the best we could do at the time. We later got tourniquets um, during that deployment, but that was new. And so even really understanding management of a battlefield casualty was relatively new to our understanding and how best to prepare. Um, do I think in hindsight, it would have been nice to, to train that differently? He, hell yeah. But there were a lot of unknowns. And, uh, I think the, the events that eventually unfolded, um, during that particular rotation helped our team, when I say medical team, prepare the next group even better and, and was really served as a motivator to, uh, 
to ensure that the right training is being given to the right people at the right time and really trying to push the envelope on that operational and tactical level training for our medical technicians and for soldiers in general. So it was a real driver, but that particular uh, rotation was, was, was challenging in a lot of ways. Did your time in, in rural medicine working in a small community give you some preparation for the, the casualties that you had to deal with from our small community of you know, 200, 200 soldiers in, in Kandahar City? Perhaps. I, I think, yeah, you're dealing with a similar kind of, you're dealing with living and breathing in the small community in which you're also um, serving. And that is a, that's a piece of rural medicine. Um, and that is a, a little bit different in the military context because of the intensity uh, of what you're living it and the day-to-day 24-7 component of, of the military uh, element. And military medicine in general is, is very, very different. Um, a little less controlled a uh, little less um, equipment and access to resources that you might than you might find even in a rural environment. But did it prepare for understanding maybe the impact of what some of these events can do to a community? I, I think so, um, but I don't think anything really ever prepares you fully. And I think life would be pretty boring <laughs> if we were always prepared fully for everything that's going to happen. But uh, it, it was, a, you know, it, I guess for, for people who might be listening, we, we did lose uh, um, one of our um, public servants. And then we also uh, had some, some big injuries and um, significant injuries towards the end of our tour. And that managing of those casualties in an austere environment where you don't have a lot of resources is, uh, was, um, I think challenging for the entire group, particularly it was nearing the last few weeks of our tour. Um, but I think served also as a, a, as I said, a, a motivator for a lot of us to, to make sure that the next group is prepared perhaps better than we were. How did that experience in Afghanistan you know, change you into the future, whether it be as a person or as a physician? I think this is one of, this was again, one of those moments where you, there's a, there's a bit of a shift in how you see the world um, and how you see your place in it. This, this was a moment that shifted how I viewed serving within the military context, how I viewed um, my contribution um, and what I could contribute um, to, to service in that, in the military medical uh, domain specifically, what I could assist with and what I wanted to do with the skills that I had. And that was, so, so for me, it was a huge driver to, as I said, um, figure out a better, uh, to contribute to the training environment to make sure the medical technicians and the soldiers had what they need to help broaden and focus some of the operational medical capabilities that needed to be in place. Even how we um, prepare bases and wings and leaders 
for the things that can happen, how we advise even uh, in the operational domain, how we make sure people have what they need to do their jobs. And I'm speaking specifically in the medical component, but mm-hmm. um, that it was a huge it was a huge driver. What does life look like outside of the military? Because you got a husband who's also got um, had a career as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you ended up in Petawawa after. <laughs> After Edmonton, so another move there. Yeah. Uh, so what did what does that look like um, for you uh, outside of service? I guess I'd, I'd say we've been very fortunate. I mean, he had experience in the military, so not not everything was that I was experiencing was entirely foreign. Like we we had a common language there. He was a paramedic when we were in the Crow's Nest Pass, so we had a common language mm-hmm. in the medical domain. When. We moved to Petawawa. He rejoined the military um, as a regular force officer, and they promptly <laughs> posted him to Gagetown. <laughs> so, so that was fun, well thought out. Um, and uh, and he he only stayed a few years, so he also had an experience in Afghanistan um, on a deployment. So there's been a lot of commonalities in terms of our experiences, even though they haven't been exactly the same experiences. And, uh, and then when we came to, um, to Ottawa, he continued with his paramedic, he he joined the Ottawa paramedic service and then the fire service. So that even that common language in terms of service is, is shared. So we've been very fortunate in, in that context and a lot of commonalities in, um, in understanding each other's point of view and what, uh, the commitment of a deployment means, but also what the excitement of a deployment means, what, uh, what these experiences mean uh, personally and professionally. So that, that's been, uh, that's been sort of for a lot of years. I think we were just commenting, I think we're at 28 years married coming up, uh, which, so we met in like the campus bar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a very long time ago. And uh, so it's been a, a long, a long journey. Maybe back to, um, back to your career. I know that you've had a couple of, uh, a couple of experiences with, well, we've all had the one experience with COVID, but you've also had an experience in dealing with Ebola in, in Africa. And, and there might be something uh, I don't know if there's any parallels with those two. Yeah, there there is some. So I was I was at the um, Canadian Joint Operations Command at the time when Ebola broke out in West Africa, and that that was a really interesting time. I mean, Ebola is is endemic and and pops up from time to time, but they just never seen anything obviously this huge um, at the. Time, so there was there was a lot of concern in terms of what this would look like, and a, a little bit of foreshadowing to two thousand and whenever. But it was also it was it was really fascinating to see the medical space come front and center as terms of what I want to say the main operational arm. So here you are. The thing that's being supported by everybody else. Is now the medical piece, which kind of tips it on its head. Sure does. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of other elements, and and Canada contributed to the 
contributed to the United Kingdom's um, mission in, in Sierra Leone at the time. And so we had a team that uh, that went in as, as clinicians to support something called uh, Carytown Treatment Center right near Freetown. The, the whole experience of um, trying to gather information, trying to keep ahead, trying to advise on, a, on an infectious disease, and this was pretty limited now in, in context. At the time, it was enormous uh, and, and obviously very impactful to those countries, but relatively um, isolated in terms of, of the global impact. And it was, it was really, it was a really interesting time, a really, um, exciting time on the medical side, but also the common, when I think of what we went through with COVID, obviously very different uh, sources of the way that uh, the infection spreads and all of those elements, but that fear, that, that fear driver, there's some commonalities there. Um, some commonalities in terms of how they were looking at supply chains, even medical supply chains in particular, the breakdown of those supply chains or the hoarding of, of certain items, um, the focus of where those items went, um, the engagements with, uh, with organizations such, such as WHO and, and CDC and um, Public Health Agency of Canada and, and some of those other uh, federal and and international health organizations is, is really interesting. I was fortunate to be able to actually deploy as part of that, um, that Canadian contingent, uh, under Opserona. And, uh, it was towards the tail end of that particular, um, outbreak, but very, very interesting. And again, very impactful from a personal perspective and professional because you, you really started to see how, um, a country that had already been through so much, they had not, hadn't been long since they'd had their civil war, um, how ravaged, uh, things can become, how, um, much like Afghanistan, the healthcare system, um, challenges, limitations, uh, the the way in which um, other other people in other parts of the world are are can be are living such a different life than than what we experience here in Canada. How privileged we are in this country um, to have access to the things that we do. Not everywhere, and uh, we're certainly not perfect within the country itself. But uh, when you see um, the challenges of the slums of, of Freetown, uh, it, it really does kind of put, put it, put you in a different headspace of, of what we have available to us and what contributing again in the service domain, what that contribution can mean, um, to someone somewhere. And, uh, that, that, that doing some of this hard stuff, uh, and sometimes the hard stuff is just getting through the day, but doing some of the hard stuff, uh, why it matters, why service in, in the military in, in this particular case can be so meaningful. Did you bring any lessons learned from 
that experience in Africa um, back to Canada that were applicable for COVID? I think so, but I don't know that I knew it at the time. And I think that has to do with um, the importance of, uh, you know, civ mill engagement that really when you're talking about health and infectious disease and, and pandemic preparedness, it's, it's never simple. (laughs) It's, it, it goes beyond just the health considerations that there's all of the security implications and, um, the complexity of, you know, things like supply chains and movement and people movement and the, the limitations of health human resources in managing, um, a lot of these, uh, in, in managing this space, I think with Ebola, again, it was, it was a relatively limited part of the globe. It didn't really impact too much the rest of the world. The, the, the pandemic itself, um, really reinforced, especially nationally, uh, that incredible re- interconnectedness of all these health domains and security domains together. What was interesting is that in a lot of the work in COVID, I was reconnecting with individuals I had connected on the Ebola file with. Um, here, here in Canada? Here in Canada. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it, it, that, you know, we'd, we'd start discussing something and then realize we'd actually worked on Ebola together at some point. Um, so that... That relationship building um, for these files really matters, but I think the 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 fear around something you can't see, like an infectious disease, and the ravages of misinformation, distrust, and uh, and limitations on resources, just how challenging that can be. When I when I look back on on your your life, your career. I mean, you have been someone who has uh, not just taken opportunities, but you seem to have embraced being incredibly busy and doing difficult things. You're a national level athlete, a physician, both in a rural community and in the army, continue to be so in the in the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, parachutist, multiple operations. Uh, and one thing we didn't talk about is your... Uh, and I'm not sure how, how much you still do it, but you were a uh, competitive CrossFit athlete as well. I mean, what, what draws you towards this pace or doing difficult things? I don't entirely know. No, <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, I, I think it, it probably goes back... Um, to, I don't even know. I think there's always this desire to either prove to myself or challenge myself. And I, I mean, I'm talking very personally to challenge myself and, and to, to set a goal to deliberately work towards achieving it and then, and then achieving it, hopefully, and then setting something new. And I, I think that was something I learned in, um, synchronized swimming. You know, I remember being, you know, around in my teen years and our, our coach would sit us down. What do you want to achieve? Okay. That's great that you want to achieve that. How are you going to get there? What are the steps to getting there? 
And um, that has sort of been something that uh, that has been part of um, how I look at what I what I'm seeking to achieve at any point in time. So I'm very del- <laughs> probably boringly deliberate about some things. Uh, and, and so with, when I came across CrossFit, which was in 2005, by the way, while we were in Afghanistan, uh, and I don't know how I felt. I think they would, someone said, Hey, I think you'd be interested in this. You should try this. And it was an individual who had done some Olympic lifting. So I don't know if you remember him. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. And he showed me like how the, the very basic, basic lifts. And then I sort of go on this website, which was like probably dial up internet at the time took forever. And then you get like this little blip of a workout and I'd be like, that looks so easy. Why is that all I have to do? And then you go do it and they're like, Oh my God, this sucks. Um, and, and over time I sort of understood a little bit more about, you know, it's, it's not just the workout. It's about actually taking care of yourself. It's about, um, listening to what your body is capable of and not capable of. It's, it's about setting little goals. I'm going to go a little bit heavier than I did last time. Mm. And it's about achieving those goals and then seeing someone, in your class and you're like, I can do that. Why, why can't I do that? I, I want to do that. How do I get there? And so there was that, but also in, uh, and I did attend classes at a CrossFit gym here in Ottawa for years. There was also an anonymity to it. It was a big group of individuals that are collectively lifting each other up, that there's a real beauty to that community atmosphere. Hmm. And no one really knows what I did. No one, no one, I think some of them kind of knew, you know, a little bit of what I did, but don't really know me from work. And in that environment, it it just kind of, it's a different style of community and a different kind of experience, but they sure cheer you on, you know, when you PR something and, and you're, you're cheering them on when they PR something or, or when their third kid is born or it it, it develops a a community feeling that, um, I think is part of its appeal and it's part of its, um, uh, why it is so popular. It's, it's really the community aspect. So yes, I was a competitor. I I did compete, um, for several years and came damn close to, uh, to going to the games one year, but, uh, but now it's really just about staying well. And, uh, we have a gym in our garage that I, I work out of most mornings and, uh, trying to just maintain at this point in time and enjoy it. Are you focused now on sort of longevity? More than anything? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You know how old I am. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it is. And it is. It's about being able to be well and healthy enough to do the things I want to do, which isn't necessarily about going to the CrossFit Games. Now it's about, you know, I want to be able to ride my bike and, you know, climb that hill and mountain and um, still be as active as I want to be. So definitely more, mostly about longevity now. And every now and then ego gets in there a little bit. So it could be a good motivator. <laughs> what, what are your reflections or your thoughts about, uh, about serving? So prior to this, um, actually recording this, this, this has actually been a, 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 a lot of reflection on this and, and because I hadn't really given it a lot of thought, it was just part of what the last 20 years has been about. The service in general can take many shapes and forms. 
and it doesn't have to be a military service. It doesn't have to be first responder service. It can be, uh, you know, volunteering. It can be, it can can take a lot of, um, there's a lot of types of service for the military, uh, specifically, I, I think how I viewed service or has evolved over time. I think you and I talked about this when I, when I joined, it was, <laughs> it was a financial decision more than it was a, the, Hey, I, I, I want to serve my country, but that has really shifted and that has shifted because of the people, uh, I serve alongside, um, because of the experiences I've had, because of, uh, how I, how the hard things we've done and how I know they've affected people in a positive way. Um, because I, I've service at this stage is also about making sure that, um, my contribution leaves an organization I value better than I found it and contributing that so that the future of this organization um, has the tools and the, the means to, to make it, to continue making it better. I think service can be very hard. <laughs> There's a lot of, a lot of other things could be doing. Uh, there are moments that are just mind bogglingly difficult. Um, but there's also in you know, highest of highs and lowest of lows. And when you're serving, uh, with people that you genuinely respect and care about, it raises all of you up. Is there anything you think it's important for listeners to understand about what you do as a physician in the military, or perhaps things that keep you up at night from a broader national security context? I think the only other thing that... I think would be interesting for people to understand. And we, we touched on this a little bit before we came downstairs is I think the unique, the, the, the truly unique elements of military medicine that I certainly didn't appreciate when I, when I joined um, that I continue to, I mean, medicine in general, it's a constant, constant, um, source of learning. And, uh, I think it's one of those professions where the more, you know, the, the less, you know, mm. but military medicine in particular, and its unique nature and the operational components and, and the idea of trying to bring, um, things like surgical care to the battlefield and, and the logistics of moving, um, injured personnel back into, to other locations, having the, the specialties and the expertise available to address those, those very difficult, um, conditions is something I don't know that will ever be fully appreciated. It was probably appreciated by Canada in, in World War II, um, I think what we're seeing right now out of out of Ukraine um, is heart wrenching. It's 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 courageous what they are, are having to deal with, and I think that investment in those capabilities uh, f- from an organizational perspective is something that uh, will become increasingly important um, as, as we move forward. Uh, there are just, 
there's just no ability to replicate that on the civilian side. There simply isn't. It's a, it's a completely different, um, type of medicine that, that is driving big changes on the, on the civilian side and has for many years. Um, but something we that cannot be replaced, um, simply by relying on a civilian healthcare system. There's a fundamental operational element to military medicine that, that is unique and special and, um, incredibly important to maintain. Colleen, this has been fantastic. I'll ask you the last question that I always ask everybody, uh, educate, entertain, or elevate. Do I have to pick one? You can pick one. You can pick multiple. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it could be either. Um, I would say I have a good book recommendation and I have uh, made it made an effort over the last couple years in particular to read a bit more, um, not work related. And uh, so I've come across some great books, but one that really a standout for me because it was an unexpectedly wonderful read. And that is Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr. And it is a, a story about the power of stories. And uh, it, it, it's one that's a, a bit of an unexpected standout for sure. The other one, um, I'm not a naval historian, but I did really enjoy the book Erebus, which was by Michael Palin from, what's he from? Monty Python. Oh yeah, from Monty Python, yeah. uh, who, who's a fabulous author. Um, but that's also a really wonderful story um, and about sh- the ship Erebus and its adventures through the Antarctic before it met its unfortunate end in the Arctic. Um, so that was also, so those were the two book recommendations I would have that would both educate and entertain. entertain. Yeah. Fabulous. <laughs> hey, Colleen, thank you so much for being here again. I really appreciate your time. And uh, it's great to have the opportunity to learn that much more about a friend. Thanks for having me. You can find more information on the artists and Colleen's family her operational deployments, CrossFit achievements, and book recommendations in the show notes. Thanks again for supporting the NSP, and goodbye until next time.